0: For January 13th, 2014, it's The Overthinking It Podcast, episode 289, The Dark Carnival of Our Civil Rights. Welcome to The Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I am Matthew Rather, trained clown, and uh, I'm here with the panel <laughs> to talk about other clowns, the mentally disturbed clowns, in a sort of group or cabal or cadre or posse, if you will. Um, but first, before uh, before that, in honor of this uh, episode of the Overthinking a Podcast, which may be slightly intellectual property themed or, uh, yes, intellectually property-themed and also themed uh, with other legal concerns, I, I put this question to you, panel. If you could commit blatant copyright theft, infringement, if you could infringe on a copyright and claim that you were the author of any creative work in the history of humankind, any uh, uh, song, story, story, you know, poem, anything. And everyone would believe you, right? And you could just become the author of this thing by saying that you were, by lying. I think that's important. (laughs) By lying and saying that you were the author of this thing. What creative work in all of human history would you like to take the credit for and have all the benefits of being the author of that thing accrue to you uh first in the alphabet uh, yell at me if i'm wrong but i think it's peter fenzel
1: <laughs> thanks very much i you know what i'm gonna say the hokey pokey <laughs> I'm going to say the specifically the Hokey Pokey, not necessarily the Hokey Cokey, which is the U.K. version of the Hokey Pokey, but the Hokey Pokey, the U.S. version of the Hokey Pokey. <laughs> um, I, I'm, uh, just a quick look shows that it was copywritten in 1942. Um, gosh, there's a claim of authorship by the British Irish songwriter Jimmy Kennedy. Uh, who also wrote, We're going to hang out, the washing on the Siegfried line, and a teddy bear's picnic. I'll let him keep teddy bear's picnic, but I'm taking that, mm-hmm. hokey pokey. And the reason that I'm taking it is that the currency I would be paid in is joy. Specifically, Happy dancing children and their satisfied parents. Uh, I would feel guilty taking money for my thie- thievery. Um, fame would be fine, but I really, what I would really want to be able to get, if I don't have the satisfaction of actually doing the thing is that look of recognition from people on the street as I instantly know the positive effect that this work that I've done has had in their lives, even if it's not actually my work. I'll take that look. I'll take that affirmation, even if it's not actually something that I deserve. And and I would love to have people just sort of stop me on the street once, if they hear my name, like if we're having a conversation, and then like all of a sudden start doing the dance, like putting the right hand in, taking the right hand out, dancing all about. Getting that from like police officers and people at restaurants would probably be like really, especially because if I didn't tell them my name, they probably wouldn't know me by sight so it's something I could turn off or turn on at will uh, I just the idea to get people to like excitedly dance for me in a way that communicates fun times that they had in, in weddings or in 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 kindergarten I feel like that would be worth it I, that's what i I'm, I'm going to stick with the hokey pokey
0: Excellent. definitely uh, do you remember the uh, the Colbert report week that was live from Iraq where uh, Stephen Colbert tried to get the the senior non commissioned officer in uh, in Iraq to lead the troops in drill and practice, which was essentially the hokey pokey and consisted of like right hand in, right hand out. <laughs> and and uh and to his eternal credit, uh this particular sergeant would not do it because he had some dignity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> to answer to answer your rather leading question, no, I do not remember that.
0: Well that was a thing and it happened.
1: <laughs> and that was a thing that
0: happened. <laughs> um Great. Uh, Pete, of the things that you put in and out in the Hokey Pokey, uh, for example, your right hand, your Mm -hmm. left hand, your right foot, your left foot, and so on, what is your favorite thing to put in and out?
1: My whole self. Your whole self should be your favorite thing Because if your whole self is your favorite thing is isn't your favorite thing Nothing else can be your favorite thing My second choice, by the way Is The Greatest Love of All uh, The Whitney Houston song <laughs> If I could claim to have written that That's choice number two But choice number one is the hokey pokey
0: <laughs> Excellent uh, Moving on to the next in the alphabet Mark Lee, what do you want to take credit for?
1: So I- I'm going to hijack
2: this a little bit um for reasons which i'll explain in a moment um uh you we may have made reference on this podcast to friend of overthinking it john levin and when i saw him recently um i said remember the time you made that joke where uh, the national anthem of vietnam is the korean's clear water song fortunate son i thought that was a hilarious joke (laughs) and john is like did i say that Did, did i come up with that like I really hope that I did, because that's a really funny joke. And <laughs> I don't recall myself being so funny. Well, John is actually a very funny person. <laughs> um, so I wish that I came up with that joke. A because it's <laughs> a, because it's hilarious, um, um, you know, for all those times when you're uh, or your you have Vietnam War themed humor opportunities, which I know you have plenty of if you listen to this podcast. Uh, and B because I want this joke to have originated with John Levin. I really hope that he came up with this and like he didn't, uh, you know, just sort of like randomly channel this from uh, from a movie or something like that. Now, to be clear, I just. Googled Vietnam National Anthem Fortunate Son, and it did not come up with anything that indicates this is from a TV show or movie. Uh, Just so you know, now in my Google search history, tied to my account, is the search term Vietnam National Anthem Fortunate Son. I'm a little embarrassed about that, but it's going to be worth it because – uh, because I'm prompting this conversation to our overthinking at listenership to uh, let us know in the comments if you have heard this joke before about how <laughs> Vietnam's national anthem is "Fortunate Son."
0: I, Mark, I, I just want to jump in for a second and clarify a point that you've made. Here, yes, if that's all right, you had all of human history. <laughs> You had the works of of Shakespeare, of Moliere, of, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, Wole Soyinka, of Confucius, of Sappho, of Lesbos. You had the great songwriters and the great poets and the great philosophers of history to choose from. And your answer, your selection, the thing that you most want in all of human history is this joke our friend told you once.
2: Yeah, is there anything wrong with that? John's a great guy.
0: And- no, 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 no. I just want to make sure that that's your choice and that you really understand what you're giving up by making it.
2: Uh, it's yeah, a pre- it's a pretty good joke. It's pretty good- <laughs> <laughs> Vietnam War-based humor is the most important humor of all humors. Okay, like I'll tell you about how Tropic Thunder might be one of my favorite comedies of all time, all time. Okay. <laughs> i'm gonna let you finish but don't 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 take me down from this peg here right my my friends did not die face down in the mud (laughs) to give us this humor opportunity to just let you denigrate it okay
0: uh yes sir and i'm i'm sorry i didn't i didn't mean to offend as i as i was saying i only meant to clarify uh i only meant to clarify Uh, So what,
1: like, Sergeant Barnes and Sergeant Elias, like, walk into a bar? There's, like, a tense, silent standoff in which the future of our country's soul is decided. (laughs) Punchline! Anyway, platoon joke! (laughs) Go ahead.
0: (laughs) <laughs> That's, I mean, would we like just because it is the most important humor in the world of all the humors? And by the way, the backup question this week was supposed to be of all the humors, what is the most important humor? And I <laughs> had
2: Vitreous, my, Vitreous. I, I had Black
0: bile. That was mine. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, I think we should move on to Mr. Vitreous Humor himself. It's John Parrish. What up?
3: Hey, everybody. So I'm going to choose a song to take credit for for the most obvious reason, that is lucrative, lucrative royalties. Uh, I wanted to pick something that's really popular, but not huge, not, in, not so popular that my lie, because keep in mind this is a lie, will get caught immediately, but popular enough that it's going to appear in just about every movie, every TV series, every movie trailer, uh, several commercials. Uh... I'm talking, of course, about James I'm talking, of course, about James Brown's I Got You, a.k.a. I Feel Good, which has appeared in the soundtracks for The Nutty Professor, Good Morning Vietnam, Home Alone 4, <laughs> Mr. Jones, It Takes Two, Dr. little Boat Trip, K-9, Garfield the Movie, Exit Wounds, and, of course, Transformers.
0: Of those comedies, which is the most important comedy?
3: <laughs> uh, clearly... Clearly Garfield the movie, because that exposes it to the... That's probably the least useful juxtaposition of that song and that subject matter.
1: Uh, Of those movies, which one has the highest ratio of DMX to Steven Seagal in it?
3: (laughs) Oh, clearly the, clearly the nutty professor.
1: Oh, <laughs> I was going for exit wounds, but you know what? <laughs> I, I know. I'm not going to give it to you.
3: It I'm not going to give it to you. No, I know. Actually, I was uh, going uh, to, to say this time.
0: G- good morning, Vietnam, on account of the Vietnam-based humor being the most important of all the humors.
3: It is the most important of all the humors, yeah. There's no there's no arguing that. Although the, the Vietnam references in Home Alone 4 are also kind of dark. So.
0: <laughs> was that... Does Home Alone 4 even star Macaulay Culkin? No, that's the wow. one with... I think there's another... It's another
3: kid, and... Hang on. Wikipedia is going to That's, tell me in a yeah, second. No, so Home one,
1: Alone 4 is like two Home Alones removed from Macaulay Culkin. Home, Macaulay Culkin wasn't even in Home Alone 3.
3: Hang oh. on. Okay, so Home, Alone, so Home Alone 4, the film brings back several of the main characters in the first two films, including Kevin McAllister, but with all of the roles played by different actors. <laughs> and, although set in Chicago, it was actually shot in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Ah, you
1: That's can't a- see, but my hands are against my cheeks and my eyes are spread wide and my mouth is a gape. And I'm buying a toothbrush and being plucky. So,
2: so I, I went to, um, to the Home Alone 4 uh, IMD page while I was uh, waiting for an opportunity to make a joke about how this movie was set in Vietnam. Um, but I came up with something that's almost as good. Um, the uh, plot summary for Home Alone 3 says that um, Alex Pruitt, a young boy of nine living in Chicago, uh, fend off thieves who seek a top-secret chip in his toy car to support a North Korean terrorist organization's next deed. That's the plot for Home Alone 3, you guys. Yeah,
1: it gets pretty intense. The point where he has, to, uh, he has to, like, seal the chamber filling with radioactive gas and his babysitter dies while he watches is, like, really intense. <laughs> no, that doesn't happen. <laughs> 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 Did you believe me for even a moment? Jesus Christ.
0: No. I, like it. I like it when Nicolas Cage pulls the chip out of the, the nuclear missile and hands it to Sean Connery and says, The minute you don't respect this, it kills you. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my favorite part of Home Alone Four. Um, all right, I guess it's my turn, John. I was so I I you could hear my groan of displeasure because I thought you were going to steal mine. Um, oh, but you didn't, which is which is good. It's uh, it accrues to your benefit, sir, that you did not uh, steal my answer. Um, my I I was reasoning like you mostly for the Benjamins. I mean, I suppose if I could take credit. For a work of poetry, uh, you, you think I would pick the unsurpassed and unsurpassable uh, work of liter- best work of literature in any language ever—Milton's uh, *Paradise Lost*. But part of the the uh, glory of it is that it was written by a man as thoroughly disagreeable as John Milton, um, and and so I, I would probably take credit for Yeats's uh, "When You Are Old and Gray and Full of Sleep." which is a poem you should Google and read to yourself very quietly for it will make you cry. But uh, uh, no, the thing I'm going to take credit for and all the benefits of this are going to accrue to me, it is a a creative work that is under copyright and for which royalties are paid whenever it's used in uh, film or television. Um, That is the song Happy Birthday to You, uh, which I will not sing here on the podcast because I don't want to have to pay royalties to uh uh the, the the estates of patty and mildred J. hill uh, well, uh no stop they are not i am kidding, kidding i'm <laughs> kidding
1: Applebee's is fun it's true especially when we sing for you good news is we sing for free bad news is we sing off key sound off one two sound again good for happy birthday to you is Yay. it is it not like
0: is it not sound off happy, sound yeah. off birth? Okay, good.
1: I, I realized I had to change it a little bit so that we didn't get caught by the copyright. Uh <laughs> 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 to make sure we altered it slightly.
2: A <laughs> <laughs> is going to come after us for royalties. <laughs> All the
0: franchises, yes, I wonder if they've, I mean, well, I, copyright inheres in a work, you know, the second it's created. It's not like something you have to do, though you can, like, send off and register it. And, uh, you know, make extra sure that it's acknowledged that you have a copyright on something you've created. But I wonder if, if all the the various uh, fast casual franchises um, can uh, have actually made some intellectual property protection for their uh, non-happy birthday to you, happy birthday songs that they sing when they come out and, and you know, six or seven... Uh, uh, glum-looking servers like I don't know take a take a, a toilet seat cover from the bathroom and put it over your head like a crown and you know clap despondently uh, and uh, kind of mutter the song at you.
2: Matt, is this is this all coming from your clown class? It like you spent um, like nine hours today uh, coming up with these pearls of joy to toss our way. Like the bathroom, uh, the, the the toilet seat from the bathroom was a pretty dark. Uh, touch to add to that little, uh, that's, little that's bitch actually,
0: there. yes, I, I have been this, this week in a all day, several days long, intensive class in the practice of clown. Uh, so I am like, I'm full of juice tonight. Perhaps you can tell, <laughs> but, um, but the, the, that, uh, particular detail is a real thing that I did not make up that is from a chain restaurant called, I think like the roadhouse Inn or the roadhouse diner or the roadhouse cafe or something. And there's one near where my dad lives in the central coastal region of California. And, uh, you know, they come, uh, they come out and they, they take the toilet seat cover and they put it over your head and they sing, uh, they sing a song to you. If you, uh, if it's your birthday or if you claim that it's, that it's your birthday. Um, which is which would be a particularly fiendish and uh cruel thing to do to say that it's your birthday when it's not your birthday uh so that you get you know the sad little chocolate chip cookie with the candle sticking up out of it. And the glum performance by by seven or eight servers from your local fast casual dining chain.
1: Glum, glum, <laughs> sir. I take that as a slight against my former professional pride. I was never glum when I sang that song when I worked at Applebee's. Were, were your I, colleagues Were your colleagues glum? My colleagues had me do it. That's why I wasn't. That's because I wasn't glum. <laughs> my colleagues didn't have to do it. That was why they were happy.
0: <laughs> well, if you if you did not have the benefit of having Pete. At your Applebee's on your birthday, um, you you don't know the true meaning of life. All right, gentlemen, first topic. Uh, I put
1: myself in Matt, and I take my <laughs> myself. <out. laughs> um,
0: the insane clown posse is a terrorist organization. Go. <laughs> no. Okay. Did you did you want to
1: provide first of all, did you want to provide some context for why that was our question of the week before we move on? I mean we'll we'll get that topic a little bit later. Yes. But that that yeah.
0: that question of the week has to do with the second topic of tonight's podcast. And perhaps okay. that's all the context we need uh Fair for the time time being. But Pete, as a uh, uh, as a um as a juggalo ally, right? <laughs> I, you know, um Right. Uh, the uh, the the closest thing to a juggalo ally among my friends, I suppose. Um, can you please explain uh, wh- what the F is going on with the insane clown posse and the Federal Bureau of Investigation?
1: Yes. So the insane clown posse has not been identified as a terrorist organization, but they have been categorized by the FBI as a gang. Um, the the fans, not the band itself, not the insane Clompasi themselves, but the collective group of Juggalos or fans of the ICP have been categorized as a hybrid criminal gang, which subjects their fans to heightened uh, surveillance and and like well questioning. Uh, I don't know exactly what sort of legal powers uh, procedurally the FBI kind of gives itself by making this categorization, but certainly it will attend you know Juggalo events. It will question Juggalos without what might otherwise be considered cause uh, you know, because these people are supposedly a part of a hybrid criminal gang. Uh, this, the, the Insane Clown Posse is claiming in their lawsuit that this has caused them trouble in terms of lowering attendance at their concerts, at the gathering of the Juggalos, at other sorts of Insane Clown Posse-related events. The ACLU is teaming up with the Insane Clown Posse on a hit-new double LP about the dark carnival of our civil rights. No. Uh, <laughs> it's the uh, FBI.
0: I would love the Insane <laughs> insane clown civil liberties union
3: (laughs) 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 oh man it's a freaking habeas corpus how does it work
1: (laughs) (laughs) i can't even imitate how an insane clown posse song about this would go because i don't know the insane clown posse's music well enough but to provide a little bit of background to put this a bit into context because it seems kind of strange right it seems really strange um I am not here to justify what the FBI is doing. I don't think that it's right. But to provide a little bit of context, why should this matter? So – People, the Insane Clown Posse, who are they? They're a pretty – they're a rap band. Uh, Psychopathic Records is the record label that they own. They were mainstream popular from about 1998 to about the year 2000 with some crossover songs like the song Hocus Pocus, uh, which uh, has a chorus that goes hocus pocus, hocus po-, And then they talk a lot about killing people with hatchets, uh, which is – Now, I now think, Pete, is uh, there
0: any relationship between Hocus Pocus and the Hokey Pokey?
1: Only the magic in your heart when you (laughs) sing it to your children. Um, But no, but the point is that after their mainstream success as a crossover, you know, record industry darling, um, the insane clown posse who wears clown makeup as a sort of form of Identity reclaiming uh, identity reconstruction, probably related to class uh if you want to really deconstruct it, although I suppose the impulse to create here is not the same as the impulse to criticize, and certainly the discourses are different but so in take the back inter- the clown <laughs> take back the clown in the intervening decade and a half since the insane clown posse were popular in the mainstream, they uh the earliest and most resilient and most uh I guess influential online I mean, you could call it a social network, although the term social network now means something else. But but they organized online into geographically located and cross-geographical almost cells. Right where different organizations of juggalos in different cities had web presences much earlier than comparable sorts of fandom. They would organize to go to concerts. They would organize to hold their own events. There was a ton of social capital built up in the fans of the Insane Clown Posse in various places around the country. Now, the fans of this group have a reputation for being recluses, for being social outcasts, for being loners, and as such, use the internet to reach out to one another, not necessarily feeling that in their own immediate vicinity they would meet a lot of like-minded individuals who would also wear clown makeup and go to these very, very aggressive, hardcore uh, rock concert, rap concerts. So, uh, there were a lot of things about the Insane Clown Posse's fandom that look kind of like what if not a gang might look like, what a terrorist organization might look like in the sense that it is decentralized. You know, it is, it is resilient. You can shut down one cell, but you can't shut down the whole thing, driven by the ideology rather than by a central hierarchy, right? Uh, and then it has various sort of organizations that are legitimate institutions that kind of feed it resources, such as the Palladium in Worcester, right? <laughs> Which is like, no. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> concert venue joke no um but the point is that they that if you were to want to organize people you could do worse than look at how the juggalos have done it over the course of the last 15 years now nowadays they're not necessarily always breaking new ground lately there have been revelations, most notably through the virality of the gathering of the Juggalos promotional videos, that this society has grown among us and is, has kind of remained uh, independent of the uh, editorial blessings of mainstream quality control apparatus, right? And as such, they make, like, silly commercials that are 15 minutes long about helicopter rides and Ferris wheels, um, And in that sense, we can all laugh at that, and that's funny, uh, partially because we recognize part of ourselves in it and our own desire to be silly in front of cameras, I guess. But... Uh, and certainly there are acts of violence that are committed by people who also like this music. Uh, there are also, I mean, there are also acts of violence that are committed by people who like other li- acts of kinds of music. Um, you know, I think that there's a Doors song in Apocalypse Now, so maybe we should, you know, dig up Jim Morrison and Triumph War Crimes. I don't know. The point is that uh, there is a social organization. There are crimes that are committed by the social organization. Well, not by the social organization. That's the question. By individuals in the social organization – Uh, Does the – is the FBI fulfilling its responsibilities constitutionally? Is it observing legal protections? Uh, Is what they're doing right? What does it mean for art that they're saying that the the thing that defines whether these people are a gang – which, in and of itself, is a strain is a, is a problematic thing to kind of label a group of Americans as an American internal law enforcement organization, right? It's like, well, these people are these people are are, are othered from the other people, and they have lesser rights, and we can search them more easily and question them more well, easily. It's
3: it's, it's not necess- it's not necessarily a, a declaration that confers more or fewer rights upon the people involved. Although I think that is the assertion that ICP is making in the lawsuit. Yeah. It uh, so the, so the label came about as part of the FBI's national gang threat assessment. Report in back in 2011, which, as I gather, is just an annual report or a periodic report that the FBI puts out saying, hey, these are some gangs to watch out for. Now, part of the implication is that, you know, these guys are on the FBI's radar. <laughs> these and gangs are the, so
0: hot right now. <laughs> yes.
3: Yes. It's it's the hot or not list of, of 2011. It's, uh, and part of the implication is also that, you know, local law enforcement agencies should watch out for these guys moving into town, which. On on that level alone is perhaps justifiable because you know if I'm a if I'm a small town sheriff perhaps with with nothing to lose uh, and a, a dangerous past the last thing I want is is juggalo showing up and camping out uh, you know in a, in a campground outside my town so perhaps that's perhaps that's plausible at the same time you know Pete as you say there is there is the implication of you know these these guys receiving additional scrutiny there is also the uh, the FBI's own admission in this report that the that the juggalos don't seem to have an organized criminal hierarchy, which is what you would typically associate with a gang or require of a gang, is that you know they act in co- they act in concert, uh, no pun intended. That you know they have they have specific plans and conspiracies to uh, to commit criminal activity, but I, I, I think the the one thing, and maybe I'm dovetailing a little that makes, that makes juggalos. So I guess difficult to identify or sympathize with, and therefore makes it, makes it easier to consider them a gang is, I guess, sort of the, the, the weird, the effort they put in to make themselves, because there is a, there is a great effort on their part to make themselves other, to make them, to immerse themselves in this culture and, define themselves by it to the exclusion of appearing quote unquote and it was a loaded term normal
1: yeah um so but i mean of course that is a question that sort of is j edgar hooverish in its view of the role of the law right where it's it's are you part of you know the the rightful white bread kind of american society that we're comfortable with certainly they're trying to alienate are they themselves are alienated they have a culture instead of rituals that are alienated i mean of course this is also the same kind of attitude that you know uh, bill the butcher uses against catholics in gangs of new york and real people used against catholics in real gangs of new york uh you know it's like oh there's the mackerel snappers and their uh, the man what with the pointy hat and his throne in rome you know they, they're so strange they're so exotic they're so different um Right, so, right. And, yeah. uh, and
3: obviously, obviously, you know, it, on a historical level, that sort of thing isn't, you know, that sort of thing isn't justified. And uh, where, it, where it does cross the line is, you know, you have the, you have the tendency of the subgroup to uh, both isolate itself and then define itself through its isolation. You know, one of the reasons that so many ICP fans identify so strongly is because by enmeshing themselves in this group, they sort of cast off, you know, extraneous connections uh, and in the process, you know, have fewer people to identify with except uh, fellow believers. Uh, but obviously, the the irresponsible part, I, I guess, we're asserting is that if you if you take no further effort to get to know these people better, and then just presume that any crime is you know gang related, conspired, uh, masterminded on some level, that's that's where that's where I think that law enforcement crosses the line.
1: Yeah. And and if we want to sort of talk about this from kind of an art perspective, uh, there is a there's a a thing going on here where there is a power generated by the art that these people share. Um, And I mean, we can also if we want to, we can take this moment to dive down an endless rabbit hole of defining what is or isn't art. Um, And I guess we probably Uh, need to talk about the bit For that,
0: I refer everyone to the previous Overthinking It podcast episode uh, called What Art Ain't. Which you can yeah. Google for on overthinking it, and that that contains a um, comprehensive definition of at least what art isn't uh, or ain't, if you will. Right, and I will
1: exactly. So yeah, so so let's so assuming that the music that everyone is listening to uh is artistic in its manner or in its in its in its relation to people uh there is a unifying and motivating power uh there is there is a capacity for connection there is there is an extrinsic result to the music there are effects that are measurable in sort of non-art metrics. Like, we'd like to think of artistic things, entertainment things happening as a sort of diversion from the main mechanisms of the operations of our society. Uh, we like to sort of think that this it can be above these sorts of things. But here is a situation where, you know, the, 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 F, the local law enforcement should know. I mean, they should know if there's a large organization of people that lives in the town. Right? If you're a cop in like a in a small town and there's like a large group of a couple thousand people that like hang out in your town like you know once a year, then you should know who they are and you should know what they do. What you maybe shouldn't do is start from the assumption that they're a dangerous bunch of murderers. um but you should know like you should understand it, and there's an effect that that a unifying song can have on people right that will that will make them something that the police need to know about. Uh, to do their jobs effectively, which should be to protect people, right? And in this case, to even to protect the juggalos, right? You know, like, you know, underneath that makeup is still a person that needs to be protected from other things that could threaten them, you know? And, I mean, a lot of the time you're wearing that armor's protection because you're thinking the people around you, they won't protect you the way that your scary clown face will. But anyway, uh, I don't want to get into that too much. But anyway, um, just that – I just think it's interesting to look at the kind of uh, the kind of extrinsic effects, the places where art – uncomfortably meets with the ways that – the ways that people try to define their role in society or the good in society in a way that doesn't include art. So – Maybe I'm not doing a great job of explaining this, but – so if you are setting out to decide what is good, what should I do, what is my role, and what is my job, what is the right thing for me to do in my life, and you decide, OK, I want to support like justice and fairness and safety, and these are the things that I believe in and these are the things that I do. And then someone comes along and said, I just made an Alvin and the Chipmunks movie, and you're like <laughs> – well, my definition of what my world is – Um, That doesn't seem to have anything to do with an Alvin and the Chipmunks movie except insofar as much as providing a safe environment for people to enjoy it perhaps. But like the idea of chipmunks that are also people and they sing songs and the songs go faster than regular songs. There are a lot of really strange reactions that people have to this kind of like nexus of interaction between – uh, a definition of your own purpose that you set for yourself or that you find in society or a definition of the good or a definition of virtue and then like something creative that comes in that you didn't consider or that isn't sort of grockable in that sort of uh, first principles-driven way of looking at things. And in this case, it's like here's a whole bunch of people that have this – you know, combination of simples and rituals and ideas about themselves and ideas about each other that are tied up in their experiences as students, but also in their upbringings and their neighborhoods. There's a lot of economics and class and races involved in it. And all this stuff is all happening and it's unified by these clown masks. And I'm sure not going to a Blaze Your Dead Homie concert. So, how am I going to figure out what this is all about? Right, like, and How do I figure out what it means to me and my definition of the world? And I think that – and this I think affects both our first conversation topic and our second conversation topic, which we'll talk about later, which is then um, how does that affect my idea of what I should be doing with myself? Um, and, and, and what does that do? Like art challenges people right? Uh, even bad, bad art even challenges people more than good art. It's easy to, to like say, well, it's good art. Like it's easier to deal with. I was reading a Reddit thread today where people were talking about the first time they ever saw male genitalia. And someone wrote down that they, the first time a woman, so the first time she saw male genitalia was Ian McKellen naked on stage in King Lear. It was like the first male genitalia that she ever saw in her life. Right. And it's like, well, that's art. So it's more comfortable because it's good. Right, but if it were like, oh, it was you know Aaron Eckhart's penis in I Frankenstein, which I don't think appears in I Frankenstein, which is coming out in a couple weeks. But if it was like the first time I saw it was Aaron Eckhart's penis, which is in like a third of I Frankenstein for some reason, which again it isn't. But like, let's assume it was just for the sake of entertaining ourselves. Uh, That becomes a lot less defensible because the art isn't very good, right? It's more challenging. And
0: um, hold on, hold uh, on. We don't know. We can't make truth claims as to whether (laughs) I Frankenstein is good or not. We can only say that the balance of probability is that (laughs) I, Frankenstein, is like having a dump taken in your mouth
1: by by Mary Shelley. I think it's the only movie that I follow on Facebook just because it's just so hilarious. Just for people who aren't familiar, I Frankenstein. I think we've talked about it briefly on the podcast, uh, poses the question that Mary Shelley neglected in the original telling of the story, which is, what if in the far future Frankenstein learned six martial arts and parkour and, like, fought against a bunch of gargoyles in a future uh, Hexscape sort of Shadowrun style and had, like, lengthy Wrath of the Titans quality discussions about the human soul, right? Well, he had one axe that he split into two blades and he spun around his head as he jumped off of buildings um sorry frankenstein's monster frankenstein's monster not frankenstein himself um but anyway uh the 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 point is in the interaction between the material world the legal world all these institutions that we use to guide our behavior and then the artistic world which is generated from these impulses of creativity where you don't usually think first what is this going to accomplish you think like i want to do this thing Right. This is the thing that I, I, that is coming from me. I have this idea. It's either associative or it's generative in some way. I want to go and put this thing out there. I want to get an emotional connection with people. I want to get a reaction from people. What's the interaction between these things that create these, these emotional bonds and then things that you can judge from other standpoints of the good, the useful, the powerful, the wealthy, all this other stuff? Um, and I guess lawyers are being called upon to adjudicate the whole thing. <laughs> Um, I mean, Mark, what do you think about so, all this stuff? As, so, as a member of the ICP. No, as, you're not. As a juggalo. As <laughs> I mean, our only Asian, which it doesn't mean you're a juggalo, but it doesn't mean you're a minority. Uh, and you are a gang within this group, by the way. We've defined you as such because of your social capital. Oh, thanks, Pete. Yes.
2: Um, okay, so to try to unpack what you're, what you're getting at here, I mean, like, let's, let's take, as I often like to do on this podcast, a really reductive opposite example of what you're talking about. Yep. Right? Like... Um, just like uh like the the process of creating art you're talking about the process of creating art and like how uh the 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 broader society is supposed to um relate to it right i mean so let's take like the most innocuous uh teen pop act right the disney pop machine you know that's producing like whatever the current equivalent of demi lovato is right like
1: there's no equivalent she's without equivalent
2: <laughs> so, okay just if you can imagine a notional okay. if if you can imagine a world where such a thing is possible right right right. like her art uh is put out there and sort of nobody is questioning um its appropriateness uh or um you know like if it's uh effect on its fans is somehow negative and detrimental to society and um and and worthy of law enforcement uh attention right i mean like uh, I, I'll be honest, Pete. I'm, I'm struggling a little bit here to, 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 to catch on to your. Are you saying uh, that members Douglas of, of to... the
0: members of the Mickey Mouse Club are a gang?
1: <laughs> okay, so there's a couple of there's okay, so there's a couple ways to look at this. The first is to to look at the very simple example of what happened to the ICP the first time. Actually, maybe this is the best way to to look at it. Let's com- contrast two different times that like the ICP was in this kind of discussion, right? So let's jump all the way back. I have to Google exactly what year this happened. Let's jump all the way back. Oh, actually, this was a little before that, a little before the ICP was popular. But let's jump back to 1999 when the Columbine shooting happened. Right. And when uh, when the Columbine shooting happened, there were a lot of factors that contributed to the Columbine shooting, to those two kids shooting those people in that school. But in the media, it was very much furthered that it was music that caused the shooting, that it was Marilyn Manson, I believe. Uh, I don't think the maybe the Insane Clown Posse. Oh, no, because the Insane Clown Posse were at the height of their popularity then. I believe that the Insane Clown Posse was indicted at least partially in the media conversation in the Columbine shooting. Right Now, in this case, this is like what John is talking about. They're the other. They're very different. They're isolated. The society in general has kind of a coalition together that doesn't want the insane clown posse to be something that's okay to do right and 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 there are people there are moms who are uncomfortable with it there are city officials who don't like it then there are also sort of like music people and entertainment people who see it as kind of fringy and are kind of okay with throwing it under the bus right like it's like we're we're all kind of okay with sort of blaming the insane clown posse for this and then they can come out and marilyn manson was i think more in the center of this sort of thing and come out and say um no, this isn't our fault. What about freedom? What about guns? What about mental health? What about all this other stuff that could cause this? Where were the parents? All this other stuff. And, but it's very much like the people we're accusing are, have, are responsible, have the burden on them. The burden is on them to explain to us why they're not responsible for unrelated people killing unrelated people. Right? Think about the power balance there. And now think about the power balance now, where the ICP is teaming up with the American Civil Liberties Union to sue the FBI, right? Now, to me, that speaks to a vastly different institutional dynamic between the art and the extrinsic effects of the art, the things in society that make us want to blame the art for things or credit the art for things, the ways in which the art challenges us. Right. And that's the problem that that that's the sort of problem that um, is being posed here. And the problem is being posed to institutions like the FBI, to like family councils, to social organizations that benefit from the coalitions between social cultural groups who have tastes in entertainment or tastes in in the things that people are exposed to or moral or religious doctrines and sort of their political associations with like government authority. Right? Like, you know, parents who and and, and cops who come together to try to stomp down on Marilyn Manson. Right? Like, that coalition is all of a sudden a little bit more balanced by these artists who are coming out and are disrupting it. Right, and and the artists are showing that their ability to generate followership, their ability to connect with people, is provide. And yes, their ability to make money doing this, but the money comes from the connection, and it comes from the kind of independence that they get because also of the weakening of the role of the record companies in all this. Um, it would be difficult for a Demi Lovato analog to do this, but not impossible. Like if Demi Lovato herself were like blamed for like a murder. Right, like let's say somebody just went out and just like shot a bunch of people and was just like Demi Lovato is my idol, right? And then for some reason, you know the 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 FBI, the NSA, and then like you know the vice president, Joe Biden, all teamed up and were like Demi Lovato needs to offer an apology on television for her role in this, right? Like Demi Lovato has enough followers in social media, she has enough clout, she knows enough people that she personally and her agents and her apparatus could try to gather like a defense, right? And so then we're seeing that it's not just about art and ideas versus like institutions and power because that's a narrative we're comfortable with. We're comfortable with the idea of art being the little guy and then like the government being the bad guy or the society being the bad guy. What is less comfortable to explain is when for – so- for adjudicating these sorts of differences that are happening in the material sphere, uh, when art is involved with them in a way that they're not necessarily – Powerless, right? Like what and, – and then what does the power – that art has due to their insulation from criticism. Maybe that's really what I'm talking about, is that, like, as long as the insane clown posse is is the little guy, and as long as they have no real defense against the criticisms leveled against them, other than the Constitution and the impracticality of driving them out of existence, like, as long as they're there, it's very comfortable to us to say everything that they do is great, and everybody who's bashing them is being stupid. But, now they have lawyers, too. And now it's lawyers versus lawyers, and now you have to solve this, you have to adjudicate this, you have to figure this out. And there's not a comfortable way of saying the insane clown posse is always right because they're artists that's
2: interesting so pete you're basically saying that like with the aclu you on their side like uh the insane clown posse becomes a little bit less
1: sympathetic in this oh i'm just saying um there is a sympathy you can have for somebody you have no intention of helping right like there's this, like oh like the starving children in africa that i'm gonna do nothing about i don't even know what country they're in right like it's like um and it's another thing if it's like the same say that starving child in Africa you see on television then grows up you know manages to become a delegate in the UN and condemns the United States' presence in Israel all of a sudden that person in Africa is like a different sort of animal right animal I don't mean to like say that they're animalistic but you know what I mean like I meant it as a comparison like when a person who is sympathetic because we admire a virtue about them that's anti-material when they get material then it changes the way that we look at them um and it makes it, I think, more difficult. Uh I don't know. I'm I'm kind of I've ranted a lot on this. Does anybody else have any thoughts about this? Does that make sense? Like the, just the idea of like the the sort of the we 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 can patronize these people that we see as as being kind of hopeless and helpless. Um but once they become involved in the mechanisms of power, once they themselves have power, then I'm not it's not necessarily that it makes them less sympathetic, but it's like it makes it more complicated to say what they should and shouldn't get um it makes it feel less easy it makes it feel more invested maybe the other example that we're going to talk about later makes this actually a little bit more complicated uh in a more interesting way i'm just sort of sensing that if i stop talking no one else is going to have anything yes so, here, it
3: we
0: now, so okay, here we go i'm segueing now so keep so, talking let's do it um, speaking um, of insane clowns <laughs> child <both laughs> has been up to some stuff yes there we go. That's, that's a that's a graceful segue. So,
3: and this actually flew a little bit under my radar until very recently. So it's it's interesting to me late. So, in summary, Shia LaBeouf made a short film a couple of years ago. I want to say in like 2009 or so, uh, which completely ripped off the the premise and a good aspect of the story from a cartoonist named uh, Daniel Close or Klaus. I'm not quite sure how it's pronounced, unfortunately. So this was brooded about for a while until enough evidence was assembled that he uh, was sort of not compelled, I guess, coerced. He felt he had to make an apology. Uh, Adding perhaps injury to insult. I'm trying to load the page here, but unfortunately, it's the Huffington Post. Uh, uh, The apology that he issued online was, in fact... uh, was in fact plagiarized itself uh, from Lena Dunham in part, uh, and I believe maybe a couple other sources. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah Lena Dunham in particular. So, uh, in, in other words, when caught in, when caught in the act of plagiarism, Shylobov decided to plagiarize his apology. So when caught on this, in turn, Shia LaBeouf's response was, oh, no, 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 this is all just performance art. I'm really just making a comment on, you know, the nature of art and creativity in the digital age and, you know, how weirdly corporate it is to claim to own an idea, man. Uh, Shia LaBeouf has since announced, I think just over this weekend, that he is retiring from from art of any sort. So this this was interesting to me, simply, uh, largely because... Uh, largely because of a, a discussion I found that sort of summarized all this for me by a, a webcomic cartoonist himself named Chris Straub. Uh, Straub, whose, whose work itself has been plagiarized or just copied without attribution at, at several points uh, along the internet. Uh, so he makes the assertion that, you know, shy tried to shift this conversation once he got caught, uh, and I'm going to quote uh, Straub's blog post here, which I'll share in the notes of the show. Quote, Unfortunately, he came to this thinking after his financial success. If this was first-year art school, he would have been expelled. Art has to have a thesis, and it has to be accountable. You can't not turn in your art homework, then claim the whole point was to make a high-concept statement about not turning in your homework. uh, Close quote. So I'd like to – I'd really like to open that up to the group just because whenever someone makes – A, I don't think Shia LaBeouf's position is at all defensible in this – But I would like to, whenever someone makes the statement that art has to do this, I I instinctively want to pick it apart. I instinctively want to examine it. So I want to turn that to the panel. Does art have to have a thesis and does it have to be accountable?
0: Anyone who says you can't not turn in your art homework then claim the whole point was uh, to make a high concept statement about not turning in your homework, anyone who makes that statement has not been to art school because in, <laughs> <laughs> in, in fact, you can do that uh, and uh and in several quarters would be celebrated for for having done that um I say as a person who's going to something like art school, though not for drawing and stuff um, look i like I feel like before we even get into this, like, I want to offer about seven to 14 disclaimers uh, right about this, because you can't talk about intellectual property and the work of art in the age of digital reproduction without crossing the streams um, of a number of discourses that work at cross-purposes. Right? There's a sort of normative moral discourse. there is a legal discourse which is like thorny, and you really need to be an expert in in order to say anything useful. Um, and there, then there is a discourse of kind of like common decency or of uh you know what what the average person would would expect, and all these things are 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 more often than not, I find at at cross purposes. Um, so talking about you know, uh, issues of, of copyright infringement or piracy or fair use or what gets called fair use, right, is a real clusterf to try to step into um, without uh, several, without, you know, advanced credentials in several martial arts. But um, the, the this very specific question, John, that you asked Uh, I want to answer, which is that, uh, you know, you, you feel like, um, anytime anyone says art has to do something, you instinctively recoil against that. And I'm with you. I say F them, you know, I say (laughs) my art doesn't, I I say, I'm not even going to turn in my art homework. I say, I'm not even going to turn in my art homework, homework, you know, and, uh, uh, right. And, and to say that sort of art, art has to have a thesis is, um, is I think, naive, because after all, the author is dead. I-, I think it may be more accurate to say art has a thesis, whether you intend it to have it or not, right? Yeah. like The mm-hmm. thing has aspects and elements that we can talk about, and those elements may have consequences of various kinds, uh, and we can talk about those consequences as well. Um, but to say that it's a sort of a priori requirement that... You know, art have uh, have a point is, I think, setting yourself up for some really insufferable melodrama.
3: Yeah, the the element of Straub's statement that I I had the that I had the bigger objection to is is his follow up uh, that art has to be accountable. And my fear with that is that 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 puts an undue premium or an undue bias in favor of artists who are also articulate people who are better able to couch what they're doing within the language of an existing genre of an existing status quo, which a casual inspection of art history will tell us, uh, cuts out a lot of stuff on the avant garde, a lot of stuff on the fringes. Like if you're, if you're really able to define what your art is about in a way that a a common audience or even a critical audience can appreciate, then you're not really pushing the envelope as it were. You're not really, you're not really doing anything new, new and, in a number of artistic circles, it's kind of the goal. The goal is to do something new, completely original, untouched un uh, unapproachable
0: so right, so you're saying we don't want to foreclose the possibility right like in, and we right. don't really want to foreclose any possibility that could reasonably that could you know lead to some productive avenue of artistic production
3: right yeah. now. Yeah. Okay. Good. Exactly. Now, all that being said, I. All that being said, I. It doesn't seem clear to me that any of this would be a defense of Labouf's activity. Just because it, I don't know. Like at, at this point, I, I. I really struggle because I'm looking for a better rationalization than this. Just doesn't feel like an art project, Shia Labouf, but this just doesn't feel like an art project like if someone has to if someone has to stand up and tell you no 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 this is art this isn't you know just this isn't just me standing naked on a street corner painted blue and you know playing the ukulele this is in fact an art project then i, I don't know and again i'm i'm sort of guilty of my own thing here because i'm i'm defining what art has to be but one of the one of the things i've always believed is that art has to be identifiable as art to I guess the average rational viewer like you can't just pass it and say oh this oh what is this I I mistook this for subway directions or something
2: like that
0: yeah I I mistook this for feces smeared on the side of a wall and
1: I
2: I I mistook this for a mess I mistook (laughs) this for a gang (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, the, see, this is all related. Like, I hope everybody's seeing the obvious connections between the Sheila LaBeouf situation and the insane clown posse situation. The idea of this is problematic for inarticulate artists who are incapable of explaining to people why they're doing what they're doing, and that's the big challenge, right? The idea that it's like the art might not have necessarily been made with a thesis, but in talking about the art as outsiders or as readers or understanders of it – we might feel that it, it has to have a thesis and its accountability could be something that we might discuss. Right? Like, Sheila Booth, part of why he doesn't, it, does it, it's hard for him to say this is just art, is because he's benefiting from it financially, like, substantially right like he's made a movie that he's yeah. selling to people and and this is part of the problematization if Sheila Bouf were doing this on a street corner or even if it was just like if he just like went on on Jay Leno let's say that Sheila Bouf went on Jay Leno and plagiarized every word in his interview with Jay Leno from like a Jay Leno interview with French Stewart from like you know 2002 <laughs> like let's say exactly so that's funny that would be ours yeah. Yeah, and part of it is because he would have nothing. He would he wouldn't be gaining anything from it that we felt had like a power base that was threatening, right? Like, and and so it's easy. It's like it, it feels harmless, and in that sense, it's easy for us to kind of put it in this elevated space where we can put art that we don't have to deal with in a problematic way. But as soon as you start selling it to people, or as soon as you start gathering followers and fans, I mean, Shia LaBeouf makes a lot of super duper mega blockbuster movies right like he's not just some guy who makes movies right like he's got a lot of resources that are dedicated to his fame and fortune right so that makes it more problematic yeah
3: i i guess i guess a similar a similar analogy and and one taken from real life is will ferrell appearing as the character of ron burgundy and reading the news in a small town you know local local news channel evening broadcast which he's which he's done i believe at least once uh that's an example of I mean, it's clearly artistic in some sense, in that I doubt he's getting paid for it. And yes, it is driving some publicity for the for the upcoming Anchorman sequel. But uh, you know, above me on that, it, it it feels more like an artistic project because it's recognizable as art, uh, and it it really it's recognizable as art. It's at the expense of nobody, and, and actually, I, I get I think I've sort of hit on there because the the clear thi- the clear the clear skepticism about this being art is that it's at someone else's expense at this point.
1: Yeah, although there are ways in which art can be at someone's expense um, that feel more comfortable to categorize as art. like, for example, you know, uh, say you were to go see like a political drag review about you know like George W. Bush and Barack Obama being lovers right say that you were going to go see that that would be at the expense of george w bush and barack obama in a lot of ways and also it would be like politically organizing it could have real world political effects but sort of as long as it isn't too powerful too threatening or maybe there are certain kinds of political opinions that are certain sorts of coalitions are comfortable with and other ones that we're not comfortable with right like um I don't know. Because yeah. I thought about this quote that you sent uh, around, because you sent it around a couple days ago, this quote about art and accountability. Yeah. And I thought about it a lot because I, I, the, the easy thing to say is screw it. I don't care. I don't care if you think art should be accountable because I don't think it should be. But then it's like there are ways of looking at the world in which art really does have to be accountable. Like if you are, again, that small town sheriff who has a bunch of juggalos moving into his town or her town and all that matters to you is the safety of the people who live there and these people come in and all of a sudden there's a bunch of fights. Right, like you aren't comforted because your worldview is very specifically geared towards what you think is important and your beliefs and your values. You there is an accountability to you for what the insane clown posse fans are doing. Like it can it has to be accountable uh, because other because the discourse you've created for yourself, the the way of thinking around yourself, uh, which you see as defensible, which you see as good, right, is something that is that is definitely being affected by what is happening. Um, and it's not worth it. It's not worthwhile to you for someone to come in and say like, well, it's just music. It doesn't matter. Right now. This, of course, challenges you. You know, you're you're make you have to make this assertion. Well, we should hold this group accountable for what they're doing. Right. Um, but it's like the, the, it makes it more problematic for you. It makes it harder for you. If they have some sort of clout this is where I kind of stall out. You know, the other example is like is like Marxist views of art, right? Or like views of art as sort of an act of protest. Like 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 protest folk music. Where it's like, you know, if the purpose of humanity is like the struggle towards greater justice, then like that you can see good art as having a beauty that's related to the struggle towards justice. And I think for a lot of people, that's a very comfortable sort of thing to say about art, especially a lot of avant-garde artists who are very politically motivated. Maybe not me necessarily because I have different sorts of ideas about it. But this idea that like good art is art that like, you know tells the true real story about things that people are really doing which in the way i see the world is class struggle right and art then therefore is accountable to what it says about class struggle um you know an art that is imperialistic is 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 bad and i think it's bad right um and that's a way that art can be seen as as accountable now again there are ways that you can construct that oppose that way of looking at things that problematize it right? Like, you know, is, is, you know, is modern family really all that bad, right? Like, is like, you know, is, is love is music that makes people, you know, fall in love and, and dance and have babies. And like, if that doesn't speak to the struggle, you know, are we doing more harm than good by taking that joy out of people's lives by and, mean, f- making them not allowed to like, listen to that kind of music? There,
0: I, you know, and like, there are also sort of claims contrary to that. Like the one I'm thinking of is, is Auden's claim in, in, uh, his poem in memory of WB Yeats uh, in the second section of that, which is that uh, one of the things that he says in one of the lines of that poem is uh, for poetry makes nothing happen, you know? Um, and, and obviously that's not true, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Uh, poetry has made, made a lot of things happen, Um but 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 uh, Auden lived in a time when when they were at, when they actually wanted poetry to make uh, they weren't Marxists but they wanted poetry to make a good number of things happen with respect to like I, I don't know the Spanish Civil War or you know uh, a lot of the the sort of political issues of of their day or of the day of this sort of literate intelligentsia that that Auden was a part of and uh, and so it, it might be accurate to say. More accurate to say that that poetry makes things happen, uh, or and p- poetry here is a, a synecdoche for art, right? Art makes things happen, um, but it it makes things you can't predict happen, and the consequences of those things happening uh, may or may not be be uh, welcome by you, right? Uh, having having done your poem that makes that that has made that has made something happen, right? It's, it, there's a very, um, there's a very kind of murky relationship between cause and effect that I think makes it difficult to, to talk about these things because you can't sort of talk about it like a deterministic system where you put certain, you put a certain number of juggalos into a certain campground <laughs> in a certain Midwestern town and write like a chemical, uh, an, an insane chemical it, reaction. And, happens. and expose
2: them to a certain amount of lyrics that may or may not have things to do with violence. Right, like that, right, right, right,
0: exactly. And like three minutes twenty nine seconds, uh, and murder happens. But three minutes twenty eight seconds, and everybody is safe. <laughs> you know, uh, it's so it's very uh, it's very difficult to sort of bring bring this into a into a a sort of discourse of of moral ethics or a discourse of sort of legal. Uh, of laws, you know, which are sort of principles, which are absolute in that they sort of don't matter. It, it doesn't matter uh, who the people are. The principle is the same for everybody. You can't make a lot of those sorts of claims uh, because the relationship of, uh, of the art and of the, the making things happen um, is so messed up.
1: Also, yeah, I think. That, also, yeah. I well, mean, none.
0: I mean, none of this. Far, sorry, Pete. Last thought. I mean, none yeah. of this to suggest that Shia LaBeouf isn't a d bag.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, clearly, because Shia LaBeouf is making stuff, makes things happen. One of the things it makes happen is it kind of relatively lessens the. It like creates a financial harm to this other guy who made a comic strip that he stole all the stuff from. Right. That he right? Then, like, yeah, that, like he took,
0: yeah. that he used as a script with that and you know claimed claimed it was his own is is there a sense in which Shia LaBeouf's culpability is greater because he's a movie star God. i that, suppose i suppose so i mean not
3: not because you mean because he's a movie star in terms of that genre or because he's a movie star in terms of you know the the great triumphing over the powerless
0: well sort of but like does he have a different set of responsibilities right like in 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 a uh you know i don't know suppose someone um, trips and falls and breaks their leg on the road and I can't help them. I'm, I'm near that person. I run over to them and I can't help them because I have no medical training and they die, right? Um, and, and I didn't j- attempt to treat them. I don't think my inaction is culpable. But if I were a doctor, right, I have a different set of responsibilities toward people in the world. And we recognize that there are different ethical responsibilities based on your background or your training or your position in life, right? Different uh, professions or different sort of uh, classes of people, and I don't mean social classes, I mean different sort of divisions of people, have differing sets of ethical responsibilities uh, vis-a-vis one another. Uh, Does Shia LaBeouf have more of an obligation not to rip off the work of a creative artist, because he makes his living as a creative artist and and believe me, my fingers are, the the aerobics of scare quotes are strained by the the bunny ears that my fingers are making in the air right now <laughs> around the word creative
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh yes. Okay. Good. Thank you very much. Glad to hear that. I
1: mean, I would say I'm trying to find the exact passage that talks about it, but uh, there's definitely the Bible definitely addresses this.
2: If you want to know, <laughs> to to who much is given, much is expected. I think is uh, the.
0: Are you talking the about the parable the parable of the talents? I was
1: actually talking about the story of David and Bathsheba, which is that Shia LaBeouf could have any movie he wanted. Why does he have to have this one movie, which is the only movie that this poor guy would have? Right? Like, why why does (laughs) – and there's grave punishment, so that's a great sin for him to uh... (laughs) – For him to steal the most – even if it's the most beautiful derivative work of non-copywritten or copywritten fiction or whatever. But yeah, no, I guess there's definitely – because I mean when you said like, well, I can let somebody – I can go past somebody on the road and like not do anything and it's fine. You know, like there are definitely ways of looking at ethics that say that that's not fine, but it's also not. And you are totally right in saying in our society, we see people that have different roles as having different responsibilities. Um, and so I guess. Star, I mean, gosh, like, well, why does Angelina Jolie do all of that charity work Is part of it? Because it's sort of a necessary cost for he to, her to be that famous. Right. Like, why does Bono do all the things that he does? I mean, yes, certainly out of altruism, but certainly there's also this idea of the patrician that goes way, way back, which like in exchange for people accepting that you are wealthy and influential and powerful and high status, you're sort of expected to be benevolent and that maybe certain doors will be opened for you if you understand this relationship and certain doors will be closed to you if you do not.
0: Certain doors of the United Nations, you mean?
1: Well, I mean I don't think – I think more certain doors like at the Kennedy Center probably is a better place to start looking. Um, But I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking a little too Brahmin on all this, a little too Boston Brahmin on how like power is adjudicated and like – which is largely at dinner parties. But uh, Basically like Shia LaBeouf will find his price in the quality of his – on the quality of his wine, right, like and in the, the general generosity of his service. Um, I don't know, John. John, what do you think? I, I, mean, I keep. I feel like I'm talking way too much on this episode. You uh, have I
3: mean, I've, I've. I've asserted the point. I mean, I, I think the. I think the unifying thesis between the two stories is the question of who socially is the arbiter of what counts as art. Uh, I think, based on the Shia LaBeouf case, we we wouldn't say that the answer can be solely the artist themselves, solely the creator themselves, because if we invest in Shia LaBeouf, monopoly power to declare whether what Shia LaBeouf does is art or not, then we're sort of left without the rope to hang him, and I don't think any of us find that palatable. Uh, In the case of Insane Clown Posse, we have the equally unpalatable possibility that the FBI is the arbiter of what's considered art or not. And if they decide that, no, the Juggalos are not uh, a a culture of appreciative fans, but in fact a loosely organized criminal gang, uh, we also find that unpalatable. So, the arbiter of what art is, quote, unquote, big all caps, uh, is neither solely the artist nor, you know, an ill-defined federal law enforcement uh, agency. So, or the ACLU, for that matter. <laughs> or, the AC, or the ACLU, to be fair. So uh, who, who then is left to, to arbit what art is? Which I, I, I realize I'm kind of a jerk for bringing up an hour and five minutes into the podcast because that could take another hour and five minutes.
0: Well, right. I mean, the question in the Shia LaBeouf case is not necessarily what, what art is. It's did this guy get ripped off, right? Or am I misunderstanding something funda- fundamental? Well, it's, uh,
3: it's not just did this did Daniel Close get ripped off, because that's inarguable. The, the question is that, you know, as, as Shia LaBeouf started apologizing and started, you know, being cornered by other writers and other interviewers in turn, he spun out this very complicated web in which he asserted that, no, this is all you know, yes, I plagiarized it, but this, this quote unquote plagiarism is just my commentary on the nature of art and reproduction and creativity in the digital age. So in other words, he's there, there's no, there's no, there's no question over whether or not he ripped a guy off. There's a question of, is that act of ripping off art?
0: Right. And it's, it's a, it's a question. I mean, what Shia LaBeouf is asserting is that, um, is that, uh, uh, (laughs) ethics are hand in hand with privilege in this case, <laughs> <right? Yeah. laughs> that, uh, you know, um, <laughs> they're smooching mercy and peace have met each other. Speaking of the Bible, you know, uh, uh, righteousness and truth have kissed um, ethics goes hand in hand with privilege, David and Bathsheba.
1: I I would all – I mean (laughs) I think part of it is that he is sort of asking for clemency. He's trying to protect himself with the aegis of art, and I think that this sort of goes both ways. The aegis of art is provided both by the way that we value art and its role in society, but also I think by the difficulty – That uh, Intuitive value systems have In accommodating art It's like if you have a justice system Or a morality system And art challenges it It is convenient for you to set aside a separate place For that art to exist Where you kind of agree that you're not going to bother each other And it's like yeah you can listen to whatever music you want Just don't pretend that your music means that you don't have to also tithe Right like you know it's that kind of thing Uh, It's like because that's art You know and art's great and we love art But we also think it's important to be subservient Right like um (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's it is. It, this is a conversation that could go on for hours and hours and hours. Well, uh, let's not
0: let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's it, let's in fact uh, call it quits for this episode of the Overthinking a podcast. But if you have anything, uh, you the listener, I mean, have anything that you would like to add to this discussion uh, about Shia LaBeouf and being a douchebag uh, or of. Um, You know, the Insane Clown Posse and the designation of Juggalos as a gang or a hybrid gang, I guess. Uh, Or who is the arbiter of art? Uh, Who arbits the arbiters, in other words? Um, Because (laughs) I I heard, uh, never mind, I was going to make a dock out joke and I realized it would be just in poor taste. Um, so, uh, before I Godwin the podcast, let's, let's wrap and you can, uh, add your two cents by emailing podcast at overthinking.com by calling or texting 203-285-6401 or leaving a comment on the show notes, uh, of this episode, which is great. We had a great, uh, discussion, by the way, on the show notes of the, the previous episode and, and it was wonderful, um, talking with everybody about, uh, Netflix. Uh, which seemed to be, actually, we were very zeitgeisty. It seemed like every day there was a new internet article. So uh, we are definitely an arbiter uh, of the zeitgeist. You can find that zeitgeist on the web every day at www.overthinkingit.com where we subjected the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Dessert. I got the date right.
2: Guys, I'm beginning to think that we need to think about how our podcast as a piece of art uh, is to be held accountable for the actions of people who listen to it.
0: <laughs> you know what? I think we're just going to call it the Adam Carolla podcast and see what th- that does to our, <laughs> our listenership.
1: I just think that if, if we do a whole episode on I Frankenstein, the accountability is going to be someone's going to come burn my house down. <laughs>
0: I mean, there are cars overturned. There are fires every time. I mean, are fans of the Lakers a criminal gang?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or the Boston Red Sox, that matter, right?